Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, We have today a really fascinating show, um, and also, I think, a really important show, um, culturally, spiritually, um, and um, even legally, um, because uh, the things we are going to talk about have affected um, American policy um, in, in many, many different ways. Um, the, uh, the show is focusing on an upcoming documentary. Um, the documentary will be called 1946, The Mistranslation That Shifted a Culture. And um, the documentary is about the Bible, and it is about um, specifically the use of the word homosexual um, as it appears in the Bible. Now, if you're gay and you're Christian and, um, or, or just anybody exposed to Christianity over the past few decades, you know that um, being gay and being homosexual has been almost an obsession um, with the evangelical church. Um, that obsession is because in the Bible, they have a few passages that basically say, if you are homosexual, um, you are not eligible. You're just, you know, out of the game. Um, and it is in the context of the passages where it's mentioned, it is actually pretty ironic because everything else in those passages are things that people do, like murderers and, you know, um, liars and cheaters and all these other things. And then, and homosexuals. So it's, in this list of things that deny people entrance into, quote, unquote, the kingdom of heaven or basically spiritual salvation, everything else is things that people do. And, by the way, if they use the rest of the Bible, they can repent for and make themselves, you know, get rid of those behaviors. And then there's being homosexual, which is sort of this fixed thing that if you're that, then you're just out of the game. And um, if you go into a lot of evangelical churches, you find that this is exactly how it's practiced, um, that it is a way that uh, gay people and LGBTQ people are ostracized, and, um, you know, there you have it. And that is the rationale. It's in the Bible. People view that as, quote, unquote, the word of God, and therefore that is what God says, and that is just how it is. Well, what if it's all one big frickin' mistake? What if the use of the word homosexual in that text wasn't what the words actually meant at all, that it was based on a mistranslation and everybody has been basically singing off the wrong song sheet for many years? And that is what the producers of the film 1946 and the director specifically, uh, Sharon Roggio, have found is what the film is about. And we are going to talk to her today and find out more about that. Um, It's fascinating. It's like a murder mystery almost. And um, um, we're we're really 
excited um, to get into that. Before we do, though, I want to bring on my um, illustrious co-host, Brody Levesque, and Top Knop journalist. And uh, good afternoon, Brody. What is going on in the LGBTQ world today? Good afternoon, Rob. Well, it's been a fairly uh, decent day, if you will. Uh, we'll start off in Albany, New York. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the state's Gender Recognition Act into law earlier today. This was legislation that was uh, shepherded through both the Assembly and the Senate uh, with the assistance uh, of New York State Assemblyman Daniel O'Donnell. Uh, Governor Cuomo, in his remarks, uh, said the following, that every New Yorker deserves to be free from discrimination uh, and have state-issued identification and processes that respect them for who they are recognize their gender identity, and protect their safety. New York continues to lead the way in ensuring LGBTQ people are treated equally in every part of the law and society. This bill is another landmark that ensures that New Yorkers can express ourselves for who we are. Essentially, what the legislation does is it allows non-binary and transgender New Yorkers uh, to put an X uh, as a gender marker, on New York State driver's licenses, state ID cards, uh, and identification, uh, which the U.S. State Department, I will note, has been issuing U.S. passports uh, with an X for at least the last four or five years. So New York is now joined uh, with all the other states and uh, jurisdictions, I believe, where this brings us up to 19 states plus the District of Columbia who are now maintaining policies that are respecting the lives of non-binary people and transgender people. So uh, hats off to Governor Cuomo, Assemblyman uh, Dan O'Donnell, who I happen to know the Assemblyman. Congratulations, Danny, for bringing that one home. Um, also, I'm kind of keeping a weather eye on a couple of other things. Uh, as of note, yesterday, um, the owner of the Stonewall Inn and her partner sponsored uh, public pour-out of Anheuser-Busch InBev Company's products uh, because of the fact that Anheuser-Busch InBev has been uh, making contributions to lawmakers who have been writing bills across the United States that were targeting and have been targeting transgender youth, especially transgender females in sports. Uh, so um, what ended up happening was is, uh, Stacey Lentz uh, and her uh, partner uh, decided that uh, it was time to uh, take a stand. And so Lentz and Stonewall co-owner Kurt Kelly had a little pour out yesterday of Anheuser-Busch. On a historic note, uh, here for California at least, that kind of harkens back to the day uh, in the mid-1970s when labor uh, and union organizers went to Harvey Milk and the gay community in the Castro in San Francisco and asked them to boycott Quarter's Beer, which they did. So there's kind of a long history of the LGBTQ community pouring out beer products when the beer products <laughs> go sour, you know, in our mouths, as it were. Um, also in California, Governor Gavin Newsom will face a recall. This is the second time in the state's history uh, that a ballot uh, petition process has triggered a ballot recall. Um California Secretary of State Dr. Shirley Weber announced yesterday 
that the election will proceed. Uh, the threshold uh, signatures needed uh, have been met. Um, the California's Department of Finance will start estimating how much this is going to cost. There's still a process that the recall has to go to. Um, although the Sacramento Bee reported that this effort to recall Newsom is probably going to cost the state $215 million, which is more than the $200 million that local public health officials requested uh, from Newsom in this year's state budget to help recover from COVID-19. So imagine what the state of California could do with an additional $215 million if they didn't have to spend it on a recall that was triggered by a bunch of disgruntled Republicans and a few others who don't like Gavin Newsom. Uh, so, yeah, that's how that one kind of plays itself out. Um, looking uh, around the country, um, we're still celebrating pride everywhere. Uh, this weekend, of course, is the uh, 53rd anniversary of the Stonewall incident and the 52nd anniversary of the Gay Liberation Front's Christopher Street March, which occurred a year to the day after Stonewall. Uh, as we start to come out of the pandemic, uh, we are starting to see a lot more uh, prides occurring, a lot more in-person as opposed to Zoom, although we still have a significant amount of Zoom prides going on. And on that note, I also want to give a shout-out to musical artist Grayson Chance, who was a guest here on the show a couple weeks back. Grayson will be headlining for the first time Oklahoma City Pride. And Oklahoma City Pride, for the first time, is doing a big wing day. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Grayson's going to be the, uh, the headline act. So congratulations to Grayson, to the folks in Oklahoma City. Happy Pride. Uh, and with that, Rob, that's my look and sketch of the news. Yeah. Well, that, that's exciting and really happy for Grayson, who, um, you know, and do check out our podcast with him. Um, that was a really great show. Um, also, um, an article that appeared in the L.A. Blade on Grayson Chance. Um, and some, I, I forget who wrote that. Um, um, uh, actually, I wrote it. So there you go. That was, that was a little inside joke. Um, uh, thanks, Brody. Uh, also, uh, I, well, I wanted to bring on our guest. Um, uh, her full name is Sharon Roggio. She goes by Rocky. So if start calling her Rocky and not being overly familiar, that's just the way it is. And uh, with that, uh, Rocky, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, our pleasure. I'm really, really excited to talk to you. Um, I, I want to dive right into um, the material that, that you are investigating and bringing to light to the world. Um, and obviously the, the year 1946 is the year that a translation of the Bible happened. And this was the translation where homosexual was inserted in. And before we go into the, the background on that and the, whether it was a mistake or not, what, was, what has been the effect of that insertion of those two passages on modern Christianity? Wow, well, actually, it was only one passage originally. It was one passage from 1946 until the 70s, 1971, where we see the word inserted into three other modern English translations, and they were quite popular translations that were published in the 70s, that used the RSV as their root text and then 
ended up inserting that word into six different passages where it just doesn't belong. So with the word put into three very popular Bibles in the 70s, it was the uh, Living Bible, the New International Version, and the NASB Bible that came out. And um, the Living Bible actually got into the hands of Billy Graham. And so 40 million copies were distributed across America and by the time the gay liberation was happening, the church had all the answers that they needed. See, it's the dirty homosexuals that says it right here in black mm-hmm. and white in our Bible. And it was easy. And like you said earlier, when you were first talking about the movie, this obsession that the church has with the LGBTQ community, it's the only, quote, sin, which is not a sin, that they're like, love the sinner, hate the sin, you know, uh, they don't right. do that with anything else, and so it has become an obsession, which we deal with as, as well in the film, which we can get into in a little bit here as well. Yeah, no, I and I feel that personally because, um, not to age myself, but I'm about to do that, um, I actually went to Sunday school um, in the early 60s. That was my first innocent little exposure to Bible stories and, and the Christian church and everything else, and it literally was not mentioned in any way. Any church service I went to, you know, nothing in in Sunday school, you know, being gay, um, the issue of homosexuality, none of it was uh, even hinted at. And in the 80s and beyond, in the 70s likely, um, all of a sudden it became so pervasive. And I know the last church service I went to, which was an Easter service, um, they had this part of, the, of the, the service where people came out to confess their sins and um, show how they had been um, uh, resolved and, and um, uh, in recovery for those sins. And every sin, quote-unquote, that was on stage was um, a guy who had come out and I guess uh, now was renouncing his coming out as being gay, um, another woman who um, had left her family for her lesbian partner who was repenting that. And not a single heterosexual, quote, unquote, sexual um, uh, indiscretion was, was talked about. It was just being gay was the whole, whole deal. Um, so, I mean, the effect of this has been, been huge. Um, what is your own personal journey on this and how – did that affect you? Sure. Well, my personal journey definitely uh, is the reason why we're doing this movie. So I uh, grew up in a church. My dad's a non-denominational minister. I always knew that there was something off with the doctrine that I was being presented. And much like your story, we didn't really hear much about gay people in the church until later on in the 70s and 80s, specifically the 80s, definitely uh, you know, with the whole HIV move, you know, with the whole uh, incident in the 80s, and then the church, of course, then still targeting the LGBTQ community as uh, a big problem in our society. I always knew that there was something with the doctrine that I was being presented that I wasn't getting the full story. I didn't realize until later that I was saying sex attracted. But also growing up in a, in a wildly patriarchal family with a pastor father, you know, women at my church weren't even allowed to read from the Bible at the pulpit. Uh, and so since I was inquisitive and didn't take 
everything I was being told at face value, I was labeled a troublemaker. Uh, and so all of these things feed into who I am, not only just a, a good character, because my dad is a benevolent man. I believe that people who preach against homosexuality and some of the uh, teachings of the church, most Christians are good people. They're just led by bad doctrine and they're victims of bad theology just as much as we are. So at right. least I found some empathy in all this, but through my story, my parents suspected when I was in high school that I was a lesbian. They read my diary. I left home. It was 25 years. It's been 25 years of us, uh, you know, trying to agree to disagree and my loneliness and isolation and I need to forgive so I can have my family in my life and all of these struggles. Uh, and fast forward, I found myself in 2017, not anywhere near going to church since I left home, you know, 20 plus years ago, uh, in a church in Hollywood. <laughs> and I joined the church with my girlfriend and started to really enjoy it, but um, would see still those notes of the welcome but not equal. And now as an adult, that led me to first of all, get the church bylaws to be like, I think that this church is presenting themselves as all welcoming. And I didn't even really know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know what affirming was or non-affirming because I had been so far removed from the church. Uh, and their bylaws confirmed my reservation. And, you know, I'm still a dirty homosexual and I'm welcome but not equal kind of in their eyes, you know. And so that led me to find affirming spaces. And literally, I learned that there were gay Christians and people doing affirming theology and work well before me. And that led me to learning about, uh, well, Malakoy Narsinakoitai, I took a class on homosexuality in the Bible. And in that class, I learned about Kathy Boldock. All, all roads lead to Kathy Boldock. <laughs> Uh, and so I binge-watched Kathy. She's the lead researcher in our film. And um, because of my past experience growing up in the church, because of my self-awareness of who I am as a gay woman, and I never pretended to be anything else in the eyes of God, you know, it's just the church that I feel has the problem. There's a cancer within the church. It doesn't have anything to do with God. And then learning about not only Malakoy Narsinakoitai, but this mistranslation and this woman and this man who are writing a book on their discovery at the archives, not only at the revised standard version where they found tangible letters where the translation team admitted they made a mistake, but then how it seeps into the culture. And as we were talking in at the beginning of this conversation in the 70s, how it then has impacted and affected where we are today. And what has happened is we've seen the creation of anti-gay theology. We've seen how the church has to shift their target on to keep up with what they consider the culture wars. And it doesn't have to just do with LGBTQ people. Every single time there's another group that's included in the church, the, group, the church moves the mark. As soon as black people are welcomed in, they need to let women know exactly what their role is in the church. And we will trace and show in the film they don't even try to hide it. You know, they're like, well, we need to make sure women know their roles now. And then as soon as women get more roles, they shift the mark. And now we have to make sure the LGBTQ community know their space. And it's just this constant uh, movement of a scapegoating of like creating another. And if it's not us, it's them. And the church right. has a long history of this. Uh, so those are some of the themes as well. So anyway, because of my experience, and seeing this work, I felt it would have been irresponsible of me not to make this movie because I'm a filmmaker and I know the power of media. So I want to take 
the findings that Yale University, that Kathy and Ed have done with these letters and help propel this story so people will read their book and then seek beyond just this one mistranslation to look at how our institutions as a whole are most of the time the problem uh, and how we can challenge these institutions and do better for our society moving forward. Yeah, no, excellent. And um, I, I love everything you're doing and, and everything you just said. I, I wholeheartedly um, am behind you on that. Um, yeah, and Kathy is, uh, is a good friend. Um, we've had her on the show here. Um, I've interviewed her on other radio shows and uh, um, reviewed her book and everything else. She's, she's just outstanding. Her work um, and her bravery um, and what she's done over the years is, is uh, truly remarkable. Um, uh, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, kind of a, a little backgrounder just on the relationship between the Bible and Christians in general. And, and the, where I'm coming from on this is, um, and I've been, I'm Christian and I've, I've, I've lived my whole life this way, but my view on the Bible is it is a, I, I respect the Bible, I believe in the principles in the Bible, but I look at it as a, many times a flawed path to spirituality um, that goes through centuries of spiritual growth and awareness, um, whereas so many Christians that I interacted with um, put out the pretense that it is like the Constitution of the United States. It is like this law book. And if you actually read it, and if you actually read the context of a lot of the things that get pulled out of it, that to me has never made sense. I mean, the Bible has things, um, I think you alluded to this, um, you know, its treatment of women is abhorrent. Um, The Bible has things that are pro-slavery. The Bible actually has passages in the Old Testament that absolutely would forbid a Christmas tree being put in a home. And yet, you know, there are all these aspects of the Bible that are absolutely in it that today's modern Christians either are ignorant that they're actually in the Bible or choose to ignore. Um, Can you speak to the Bible and Christianity? Yeah, absolutely. So it is impossible to, to take, and follow the Bible literally. There are so many contradictions, and it's a growing, evolving, understanding relationship with God. As humanity is growing in this relationship, it changes and evolves. Uh, And so what has happened is, you know, it's the same thing that happened in the 50s when we started to believe in God we trust was always instilled in, you know, on our money and it's in our constitution. It's not in the constitution. We're we're a nation born on um, freedom of religion. It's not a Christian nation. And so much like that lie that has seeped into our reality, biblical inerrancy is one of those lies that the church has told. And it's a form of 
control, manipulation. And so, again, as I was saying earlier, first of all, our movie is not an attack on God. It is not an attack on Christianity, and it is not an attack on the Bible. Most, for the most part, most Christians are trying to do the best that they can and, and love God the best that they can. Um, but these are institutional problems and um, manipulation problems that stem from, from the church. And so biblical inerrancy is one of those, those lies that have seeped into our reality. And it, it's, it's hard to break away from those chains. Um, and you can't argue with somebody who is, falling in alignment with that ideology and they set it up that way, you know, uh, it's impossible to win an argument because they, you know, well, well then you don't believe the word of God or whatever. They just have those, right. those one-off right. answers that <clears throat> go nowhere. It goes nowhere. And if somebody is living in that reality, I feel that honestly, um, I have empathy for that because I feel it's just such a small minded version of God. And it, it actually keeps God in a box. Uh, so our job in the film with all of these themes that we're going to be talking about is to try to finesse them and understand that this could come almost like a hurricane to a conservative Christian, an evangelical Christian. And so again, with that, not an us versus them, this is an academic theological relational approach to real, just getting down to facts and looking for indisputable facts. And that's what our researchers do it to a degree where they're able to admit, which they do in the film, when and where they've gotten it wrong. They went in with one expectation and they're like, wow, we were wrong, you know? And then they're like, oops, well, guess we got to go back to the drawing board. Um, but that's what makes good research, right? And that's what makes an honest approach of what we're trying to do and what we are doing. So uh, I hope we'll be able to get a, broader understanding of the Bible and be able to then expand out of that small-minded reality of biblical inerrancy and get into the mysticism of the Bible and and then just really how we're supposed to use it, not as a weapon against right. people, but as a, as a way to love one another and a way to grow in humanity. Truly, truly. It's, it's often pulled off the shelf and opened up like a sort of like one of those mystical um, uh, books in witches movies where a witch opens a magical book and reads a spell and casts a spell on you. And it's just bizarre that a lot of Christians sort of pull the Bible out the same way and throw a spell at you from, from the magical book um, rather than the, the really fascinating um, construct that it, that it really is. Um, Rocky, I want you to, yeah, that's you called, could go uh, to proof texting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then they just want to prove their point. I can prove – we can prove whatever point we want in the Bible. Whatever point you want to prove, you can do it. So we're getting nowhere with these kinds of arguments. Uh, it just gets silly after a while. Yeah, no, it totally does. In fact, that you just reminded me of a time when I was actually in an argument with somebody, um, and we both did that. We went to the Bible to prove our point, and we came back, and we both brought the exact same passage – to use against each other. It was like, oh, wow, that's okay. fascinating. <laughs> yeah, this does not work. Wow. This is, <laughs> yeah, that's this, is, this is not the way to go. Yeah, exactly. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> so, um, but I, I, want, I want you to go to, there is a core story that you were telling in the documentary of, it's kind of how sort of almost like a murder mystery unfolds um, in, in the drama of it, of, of the word, homosexual being used in the translation and 
how you and the team discovered that it was a mistake and the man who called it out originally. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that scenario? Yeah. So actually our opposition is calling us um, the Da Vinci code of like a documentary version of a Dan Brown novel. So we'll take it. Um, but that's great. That's exactly what this, we have regular people who are driven by their own um, needing to know this knowledge. We have a straight evangelical, almost pedigree Christian, you know, ally who was driven to do this work. And then a gay man who literally is suicidal all his life. And it was like, if I can't find that I'm through scripture, that I'm not a great abomination, then, you know, uh, I'm going to rid this, this planet of myself. They come together. They both have the same questions. They discover it's the 1946 revised standard version that was the first team to put the word homosexual into the Bible. And Ed actually then applied for a library card. They got permission to go to Yale. Kathy's like, I'm going with you. And they hopped on a plane, and they sat in the basement of Yale University. Meanwhile, you know, they're so excited to dig into these archives and see if they can find their answer. Ed is calling Yale University every week, like, are you sure that no one's going to be there when we go? The stuff's going to be there. No one's going to check it out. Are you sure Dr. Michael Brown's not going to be there? <laughs> Dr. Robert Gagnon's not going to want to read the stuff? And they're laughing at it. They're like, no one's looked at this stuff at all. And they were right. They had found packages that had been sealed since the 60s. But they wanted to see what was going on. First of all, was it cultural and ideological or was it theological? And this team had they did the work in the 30s to have the book be published in the 40s. And so what, what did these men know about homosexuals in the 30s? And through a series of letters that they found, they found a letter by a young 21-year-old seminary student who wrote a three-page single-spaced letter with an appendix, super well-researched, super well-cited, saying, I think you have a wrong translation and here's why. And he wrote such a phenomenal letter that the head of the translation team, Dr. Luther Weigel, wrote him back in great detail. And there was a series of letters that they found amazing, right? Four letters back and forth where they actually then debated on a change of the translation because Dr. Weigel's like, you have a point here, son, you know? We're not talking about people who are born that way. We're talking about vices, people who use and abuse others. Homosexuals during that time in the 30s were mentally ill. They only studied people who were mentally ill. Everybody else was closeted. So if you were, mm -hmm. if you were found to be a pedophile, they just labeled you as a homosexual, you were uh, a degenerate, you were an outcast. They didn't know that you could be normal until much, much, much later. I mean, like, it's still very recent, you know, all of these different, it wasn't even until the 1970s that the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, declassified homosexuals as being mentally ill. So a lot of these studies are relatively new. Anyway, they found what they were looking for. Uh, and then they're like, well, now we need to know who this David is. And it took them about 10 months and some serious snooping. And they found David, and Kathy called him up one day and got him on the phone, and he's 80 years old now. He is a retired wow. minister. I'm getting close just thinking about it right. He, of course, you know, was closeted, wrote the letter, got the responses, but never talked about it because he would, he would, it would have outed him, right? So he just went on with his life. And now 60 years later, he wakes up in retirement and gets a call from Kathy Bulldog, you know, and she's like, don't hang up the phone. This is not a prank call. 
did you write a letter to the RSV team in 1959? And he's like, how did you find me? You know? Uh, and so we, so when I first heard this story, I was sitting in a Kathy Baldock conference and she's telling the story and I was just like, oh my gosh. And like I was saying earlier with my past experience, I'm like, I have to tell the story. I have to meet this man, David. First, I have to get Kathy to even talk to me and get permission to like tell her story and, and, and et cetera. Um, but I won their trust and then was able to interview Reverend David and we've been to his home in Canada. And now he is just over the moon that our society is ready for this kind of research. We know gay people, as we know more, we're doing better. Now we have these tangible letters to propel this conversation. And he tells the story of, I, I always knew that I was called into ministry despite being gay because I never pretended to be anything else but gay to God. He had a conversation with God, you know, and he answered the call. And God never took away his homosexuality. He goes, but now, right. after 60 years, I know that I was called into ministry because I was gay. And so my instincts were correct in the sense that this is a good story. We're now 70% of it filmed. We're in post-production. The scenes are coming together great. It looks beautiful. The elements of the characters are there in these real issues. And then again, real men, a real man who wrote the letter to real men who sat in a room in the basement of Yale University that made a real decision that impacted our real reality. And so it's really only relatively new. And so if it's not that old, we can, we can, we can break it apart and we can hopefully right. put our society back together. No, it's a huge opportunity. So yeah, it's I mean, exciting. obviously, yeah. Yeah, it's an opportunity that, that um, you know, when the King James Version was being put together, we don't have because, you know, it's like nobody could sit down and go, oh, wait, um, this word, no, that's, that's not right. You know, I mean, we're, it, the, the, the horses left the proverbial barn in, in a very big way there. Um, the, uh, the one thing about the story that you just told that I think is, is actually – fascinating in principle um, that can be applied even to the movement currently is the idea that um, different pronouncements or principles are made about types of people without those types of people being involved and making the statement or validating the statement itself. Uh, from transgender people to um, um, our black population to different populations uh, to women. I mean, women's health issues are, have been decided by straight white men who don't have uteruses. I mean, it's like we're, so much of our things that are laid down in our society are done by others affecting a group that doesn't have a say. And so to have somebody with somewhere even hidden a gay sensibility looking at a thought process and going wait that's not right you know um and then then going with principle on and showing others why it's not right um i think is incredibly inspiring um so i i, I yeah. think this is yeah apart from the this very specific issue which is actually pretty huge and the ripple effect that it's had on american spirituality I think the, the other underlying principle that you're uncovering is, is equally um, poignant. Um, I wanted to representation to matters, Rob, 100%, Absolutely. you know, and so uh, 
everything has been written by men. All of these decisions were written by men. And even the Bible was written for cisgendered heterosexual men for cisgendered heterosexual men. Women were property they couldn't even read. And most of if you look through the text, even the Levitical passages, it says their women. And even in the Roman text, it says that their women exchanged the natural. They went in as couples performing orgies together, you know. So right. um, we have to look at context and really dissect these things. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Representation yeah, yeah. 100%. No, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that Romans passage, though, because that was one that has always thrown me as a young person growing up Christian, um, the thing that I could never understand, even, even with whatever mistranslations there were around that particular um, uh, chapter, is how people read it out of context. Um, because the context of that passage is it describes a group of people who reject God. They reject God right at the outset. They're, they're you know, boom. God is, is not, we don't agree with God. We're not going to worship God. Boom, boom, boom. And then it talks about all these things, including heterosexual, um, you know, sexual deviancy um, on a heterosexual level and all these other things. And, oh, yeah, by the way, they, they even, you know, swapped to the other gender and da-da-da and all this stuff and how – that was a sin. And then people would throw that up as meaning being gay was a sin. And I'm like going, wait a minute, I'm a young gay Christian. I have not rejected God at all. Right. And in this passage, by what you're implying is that God made me gay because I rejected him, but I didn't do that. So, you know, just like all the kids sitting in the congregation. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it just, it, it just, um, you know, and other things that are thrown against us, like, you know, one man or a man and woman equals marriage. It is always taken out of context that Jesus was not talking about the nature of marriage when he was discussing that. He was talking about divorce. And I just right. find it ironic yeah. that so many of those conversations are with divorced Christians telling me how, you know, well, the Bible says one man and one woman is marriage. It's like, uh, no. <laughs> Um, that's right. the thing. You should not be divorced unless you have adultery as part of your one man, one married woman marriage. Because women at yeah, the time were, yeah, yeah, and it just you know they, it's they, like women were property, you know, and it's like and women needed to be taken care of. It was in context there was rationale behind what he was discussing. Herman Campbell always stopped reading after verse 6 in chapter 19 of Matthew. And if you read on, Jesus actually does something remarkable. He affirms others. So basically he says that, um, basically he says what I'm about to say, only some of you are going to be able to receive it. Not all of you are going to be able to accept it. So for those who are able to accept it, let them accept it. And then he goes, there are eunuchs that are born that way. So. If he's talking about real people, and then there are eunuchs that are made that way by man and eunuchs that choose to be eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And so he's not talking in metaphor. So if he's talking about real people, shouldn't we, you know, apply it in today's minds against the LGBTQ community? Because not all eunuchs were castrated men. That's what that means to me, you know. Um, Yeah, no. uh, Who are eunuchs born that way? 
Yeah, another word that I don't know that it was mistranslated, but it is not, uh, you know, from what I've read, been thoroughly understood as to its real meaning is the word um, pais. Um, and pais is uh, in a story where um, a Roman centurion had a, a younger male companion called a pais um, who was gravely ill, and he reaches out to Jesus to heal this young man that he loves. And in the vernacular, pais essentially means a young lover. And um, the Jesus, first of all, healed the young man from afar um, and called out the, the Roman centurion as being um, the person that Jesus had encountered in all of Israel with the greatest faith. And a lot of people think that there's no, you know, gay depiction in the Bible, except when I read that story, that's what I see. Um, yeah, I agree with you on that, you know, uh, especially like why did they use that word for slave? Because that word, it still is a form of someone who's owned, but you're right, it's, a, it's more of a lover, a loved, a cherished, you know, um, companion type language. But they want to ignore all that, and everything is laced in biases. And so, again, this all comes down with teaching of the church. So, and it's all connected, civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights. And the church constantly trying to keep a grip on their – they want the whole fucking pie, you know, excuse my language. Uh, and so, <laughs> is that biblical? <laughs> Is that biblical? Right, exactly. Um, but so uh, one of the prime examples is when LGBTQ liberation was going on, uh, the church in 1987 met to create what is called the Danvers Statement. And it's a list of 10 basically applications for masculinity and femininity. We need to make sure that we're getting, especially when women were getting educated and starting to get out into the workplace in the 70s and 80s. Like, we need to make sure that women still understand their role. Yes, you're equal, but you still have a role, and let's define it. And so they met over a weekend, and then that's when complementarian was born, a new word created by the church to get a hold of masculinity and femininity. Um, And what we see actually play out is these patriarchal themes in our society actually hurt men as much as they do women, because men can't live up to being the breadwinner of the full house. Like, who can do that in America today? And we see more men committing suicide because they can't fit up or they can't man up enough and grow up enough and fit into these masculine, toxic masculinity roles that are pressured by society. Uh, So we need to do better for everyone, not just the LGBTQ community. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, yes, and that is, that's an excellent point. Um, Rocky, I want to shift gears a little bit because um, you have a whole team behind you that is, is making this film, and I thought we want to give some shout-outs to some of the, the fantastic talent you're working with. Yes, let's do it. You want me to just go <laughs> so run down the line? <laughs> run down the list, yeah. Yeah, so uh, my mentor and our executive producer is Dan Carslake. Dan has done uh, – he's a documentary filmmaker and – two films that are very similar to what we're doing that have to do with the LGBTQ community and the church, specifically growing up in the church and with conservative parents. He did a movie called For the Bible Tells Me So, which was very 
impactful uh, in the 2000s. And then he did a movie that just played Tribeca a couple years ago called For They Know Not What They Do. Uh, and so it's been wonderful to have him guide these projects and this project and help make sure that I'm hitting all my notes as a first-time director. Um, but, I mean, he's the guy when it comes to these issues. So we're really honored to have him. And then we have Mary Lambert, who is a Grammy-nominated artist who wrote the song Same Love that Macklemore performed, and she sampled, uh, she right. was, uh, you know, sang on it as well. And she's going to do our score. We're also working with Mary to attach popular artists to do a soundtrack. So that's a goal of ours. We're working on a soundtrack. And so hopefully there'll be a soundtrack in connection with the movie. Uh, and oh, that's then, of awesome. course, Kathy and Ed are uh, it's so awesome. I can't wait. So right now we are still fundraising. Uh, and so if anybody wanted to help us <laughs> reach our goal, we have a fiscal sponsor. So it's a tax deduction. And then a GoFundMe. Everything's on our website. Um, but then we have my uh, one of my best friends who is a wonderful production designer, director herself, and a writer, Jenna Serbu, who is pretty much my right hand everything we need, you know, uh, who's known me for a long time, but is also super talented and just um, a great support. So we're super lucky to have her. And then we have Jason, who runs the original content division at Hearst Media. So Jason is working on shopping the project with us. Uh, and so he's going to open the doors to hopefully we'll see whether it's Netflix, HBO, Hulu, uh, but people are paying attention and our goal is to, with all of these wonderful people that we've acquired, and then June Young is a creative director, gay Christian, wonderful creative director who built our website and does other things for our um, visions, our, our graphics, et cetera. Um, our goal is to get worldwide distribution, to have, the to have the film translated into multiple languages and use this as a tool to create bigger conversations. We want to then tour with the film is, is the goal, Kathy, Ed, and I, so that we can turn this into an impact piece and really see real change in our society. That's huge. That's huge and wonderful. And, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Can you mention again how people who want to help contribute to the, the final production of it, how they can do so, where they log on, um, the website address, et cetera? Yes, thank you so much, and thank you for the shout-out to the team. I appreciate that. If you go to 1946themovie.com, you'll find everything that you need from signing up to receive our newsletter to our press package and other programs that we've been on. But then if you did want to become a sponsor, you can become a church sponsor or a company sponsor. We'll put your logo up uh, in connection with our movie and their trade agreements we can do in sponsorship. But if you just wanted to donate, there's a GoFundMe uh, up and people can donate there, or if you wanted a tax write-off donation, we're fiscally sponsored by Women Make Movies, and you can donate through that site, and it's a full tax write-off. All of this information is on our website, 1946themovie.com. Oh, and lastly, if I may, um, we're on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at 1946themovie, so please go find us there. If you can't donate, buy a t-shirt or share. If you share the project, I'm sure there's somebody in your community that will be able to help us reach our goal. We're trying to reach our goal over the next month, honestly, to uh, be able to pay for the technical costs that we need to finish the movie to submit to film festivals this year so we can premiere in 2022. So if anybody knows anybody who's 
maybe even a larger donor that would want a tax write-off, please share the movie. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I wanted to get that out there early on so that we, we weren't tagging at the end of the show here. Um, I, I do want to find out if, uh, because obviously you, you're being public about what the movie's about and everything else. Have you gotten any um, haters coming after you, um, you know, that, that you're attacking a foundation of the current evangelical movement or, or any kind of pushback? From Every day. Oh, yeah. 100%. Oh, so we've had some, some <laughs> big players in the arena. Actually, um, one, one guy dedicated all of Mother's Day to preach about 1946, Arsene Koitai, and how he needs his congregants and the young soldiers for Christ in his church to, first of all, not be an effeminate because that's a sin. And second of all, this is what he, his words. Uh, to make sure that they know how to de- debunk our movie. So at least he's letting our hardest audience know how to watch the movie. I feel horrible for any young person sitting in that in his sermon um, because just because you're not a, a man's man doesn't mean you're sinning. It's really horrible. Um, but anyway, then beyond that, um, so we've had a couple people do YouTube programs, radio shows. Um, we've seen podcasts where they're speaking out against the movie. They're saying the same things. We know the arguments. Um, we are well prepared and we're not afraid. Uh, one of the things we hear a lot is you can't challenge 2,000 years of church history. And my argument is um, you don't want church history on your side. <laughs> because church history yeah, has, um, yeah, it's good. it doesn't look very good for you. Uh, and so it is our responsibility to challenge the establishment, especially if it's not bearing good fruit. And so um, we've got plenty of discussion points and, again, indisputable facts. Our researchers were really looking for the truth. And as they went from the from archive to archive and history book to history book, honestly, in, in different libraries that you can't Google this stuff. It's all found. You know, they went to multiple different libraries all across the United States spent tens of thousands of dollars and years doing this research. And one of the beautiful things about the researchers is they're not, they're not bound by any institution. They have the freedom to cross over in many different fields where if you're getting a PhD in something, you usually have to be siphoned into one think tank. And so it's fascinating the things that they pull out to be able to say, no, we can challenge church history and here's why. So we say, bring it on. We are, we are encouraged that they're asking they're telling their audience to watch the film. Please just watch the film. This is not a propaganda film. Let's start the conversation. And you know, if you still don't feel that way at the end of the movie, that's fine. At the end of the day, what we're hoping to do is lead us more toward love and inclusion, but, understanding that separation of church and state is a must and that everyone deserves human dignity and equal protection under the law. So if we can move that, that middle, you know, which we will, there's going to be, there's enough evidence in this film to shift enough. And so if people want to remain stuck, they can remain stuck in their churches. And so we will respect their point of view and we will respect what they think as long as they're not causing harm to anybody else, but we need respect their, their as well. stuckedness. <laughs> Respect their stuckedness. Um, I, hey, I just you find know, it God, God bless them. You know, I hope it doesn't burn I, away I, as his soul. Yeah, exactly. I just find it ironic that that would be the argument um, about 2,000 years of 
church history from the one point that you just made that there's a lot there that you really do not want to be getting in bed with, um, number one. But number two, it seems to me that the whole point of the film, that just from the outset, is that it isn't 2,000 years. It's only since 1946 uh, on this particular well, point. Well, they say that <laughs> the Bible's always been against prohibitions against homosexuality and gay people, but that's not true. You know, these prohibitions in the Bible, these six little verses. So first of all, there are six verses that talk about same-sex activity and and the prohibitions against them. There are over 200 verses in the Bible that talk about same-sex prohibitions, you know. So what's going on with all of these sexual activities? We have to be honest with the text. And in these six verses, what we see is exploitation, abuse, um, abuse of power, age differential, dominance, you know, um, ownership. Uh, and so a man uh, abusing people in his household, including slaves and, and concubine and wives and, you know, all this different stuff. Uh, and so we're not being honest with what's really going on. So what happens is, and so our argument is, is, you know, it, some of the prohibitions had to do with, um, you know, even if it is man with man, it's man with boy. That's a whole long thing that we'll get into with the whole the car thing, yeah. which is a whole other story. Um, but um, uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's like it's, it's changing the connotation from condemning a group of people that have done nothing wrong to what the verses are really talking about, which is an act that has a victim, right. that has consequences, right. that's negative, you know, and so – um, yeah, it's, those con- it's, those things have always been there. When you put the word in there, it changes the connotation for that. Right. Yeah. Every one of those passages, every one of the six, because I, trust me, as, as a young Christian, I avidly uh, absorbed every one of them to find out because I wanted to know why. I wanted to know, you know, if I if there was something wrong with me, I wanted to to really be clear on why the Bible was saying there was something wrong, and everything I researched they all fell apart because when you look really close, they don't make sense. I mean, even the passage that you're talking about in Leviticus, the, the word that is used is, you know, even if you do accept man uh, sleeping with man, which is, 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 to your point, debatable, but even the word abomination means ritually unclean, and it is the exact same word. It's not even, uh, you know, out of context that that exact same word is the word that two chapters before talked about eating shellfish, the exact same word. So it's the exact same issue according to the Bible is eating shellfish. And, you know, you can go into the culture and and everything else um, with that. But also, um, you know, talking about 2000 years of church history, um, it's only been like 600 years that anti-gay people within the church decided to allocate um, same-sex sexual acts to Sodom and create the word sodomy. That has only been around 600 years, not 2,000. It's just, you know, it's right. all new, it's, it, you know, in the scope of things. So it's um, – anyway, it's a big job that you've undertaken. I mean, even though <laughs> you, have, you have, you know, you're, fo- you're micro-focused on, on one thing that is super, super important and I think is really – a cultural impact on American Christianity itself. But um, I really think you're, you're, you're setting off a chain reaction to a lot of other discussions that, that need to be had. Um, Thank you know, you. How rewarding have you found this so far? 
Oh, boy. I mean, it's up and down. It's it's very rewarding. I get to meet a ton of people. I'm learning a lot. I'm learning things I never thought I would be able to learn, not only just with the academics and the theology, but as a filmmaker, you know, because we can't, uh, literally the only person that's technically on staff is our editor. Like, we don't, you know, it's, it's like a very expensive endeavor, but none of the producers are getting paid. Uh, we don't get paid until the movie could possibly get distributed in a year, you know, so we're all doing this because we believe in this. Uh, and so it's uh, challenging. And last year was tough because COVID, you know, and so um, for me personally, I'm personally invested. And so uh, it's been tricky to uh, stay afloat, but it's all worth it. And uh, now that we're up and running again, and uh, we were successful at getting money in the bank to hire our editor, get her in contract. And now we have enough to hire our animator. Uh, and so, and now we're seeing cuts of the movie, so it, it, it is rewarding. What's going to be wonderful is to see the impact when it, when it really – and, you know, honestly, Rob, we've already seen the impact because we have 122,000 followers on TikTok right now in four months. We hear from the audience every day how important this is. And so as much as we hear and I take the beatings from all of the negative comments we get and I just let them bounce off because there's so many people that need this work and we're getting so much love, so – that's been really rewarding. Um, well, I am I'm thrilled. I, yeah, I, I'm super, super excited for you, for the film, um, and the impact. I, I think it will be huge. I hope it will be huge. It needs to be huge. Um, so I, I do want folks to check it out. Um, again, it's um, 1946themovie.com. Um, I hope I got that correct. Yep. Yeah, good. <laughs> hate to hate <laughs> put out the wrong web address. That would be awful. So check that out. Contribute to the movie. Check out um, the previews. Um, check out everything about it. Um, start word of mouth now. Um, we look forward to the film festivals and Netflix and everybody picking it up. That will be super, super exciting. Rocky, I want to thank you for coming on with us today. Um, uh, phenomenal work. Thank you for everything you're doing. Um, I think this is, this is vitally important. There are literally lives that I think you will be saving um, by creating this narrative out there. Um, and so thank you for that. And I want to thank Brody for his work um, as co-host, even though um, I kind of didn't let him get a word in edgewise here. But uh, hi, Brody. And I didn't Thanks say for... hi, Brody. I meant to. I've been thinking about you the whole time, Brody. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Brody. And please do check out Brody's work on the L.A. Blade. He is the editor there. You can find that online. And please come back again next week. We will be here with another phenomenal, outstanding show that you will not want to miss. I have no idea what it is yet, but I know that all those adjectives will be able to be applied to it. So for Brody and myself and Rated LGBT Radio, we wish you a very, very good week. And tell your friends to subscribe. We appreciate it. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 